Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. How has the UK evolved into the country it is today? A new book of the UK's history since the 1900s explores the political, economic, social and cultural changes which have divided the country and held it together. The book's author is Professor Pat Fain. She starts this podcast by looking at what kind of country citizens were living in at the beginning of the 1900s. Well, it was a country where there was a great deal of poverty and great inequality between rich and poor. It was a country in which there was growing protest against the way the state was organised and when the Labour Party was founded in 1900 to campaign for better conditions for working people. The trade unions were growing and were increasingly militant before 1914. Women were campaigning more and more for the vote, as, as we well know now, but also for better social conditions for everybody. Um, there was growing tension around race issues. I mean, attitudes to immigration were complicated at that point. Anyone who lived anywhere in the British Empire, which was millions of people, were officially British citizens, which was something which continued to be true till 1962. But it had been generally forgotten until we had the recent crisis around the so-called Windrush generation. Uh, when it became obvious the Home Office had chosen to forget that anyone who came here from the Empire before 1962 was British. And there should have been no problem about their residence, but they were, as we know, treating people who came here, often as children before 62, as though they had no right to be here. Um, But there was growing concern. It's always been perfectly easy for anyone from any country to come into Britain. But there was growing tension in the 1900s because of large-scale Jewish immigration. Jews were fleeing from the Russian Empire where they were suffering real persecution. Most of them really wanted to go to the United States, but many got stuck here on the way. That gave rise to a lot of anti-Semitism and to the first restrictions on immigration in 1905 in the Aliens Act, as it was called. Anyone who wasn't British was known as an alien. And that made it more difficult to to acquire British nationality. People had to prove they were familiar with the language and the culture, things we're now more familiar with. That was the first time that had been introduced. So there were new kinds... I mean, a lot of the issues that have been cause of tension through the 20th century come to the surface in the 1900s. So what was the impact of the First World War? People who were killed in the war of their families um, were often quite devastated by it. People who were, the many men who were injured in the war suffered a lot afterwards and um, both physically and psychologically injured. And their families often suffered, particularly if they came back quite damaged and um, quite difficult. But at the same time, of course, the war increased knowledge of how to of psychological and physical illnesses. For example, treatment of facial disfiguration, because many men had facial injuries after the war, was something that improved. 
Um, so the beginnings of medical and psychiatric knowledge in these sorts of areas. In other ways, for those people who stayed at home, the war was a time of great improvement. There was full employment for the first time. So for many families, living standards rose. Um, though housing was a problem, it had been major overcrowding and bad conditions before the war, and during the war, very little was built, and so conditions got much worse, which is why there were major rent strikes starting in Glasgow in 1915, which led to the first ever rent controls, um, because as people flocked into the cities where there was lots of war work, like shipbuilding in Glasgow, uh, that put pressure on housing and rents went up. Um, so rent controls were introduced as a result and continued until they were abolished by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. But these, well, these best conditions during the war, on the one hand, raised people's hopes and expectations. They didn't want to go back to the unemployment and the bad problems before the war. It also worried the government because they were afraid that if things did go back to pre-war conditions, there'd be political uprisings and they were more concerned about that partly because the Labour Party became more powerful during the war but also there was the Russian Revolution in 1917 so they got really frightened that unless they did something to ensure conditions improved there might be a socialist uprising in Britain. So they started to plan and immediately after the war in 1918 implemented major housing subsidies which so that the first major council house building started after the war and continued between the wars. There were improvements to education and maternity and child welfare. Um, Health care generally improved after the war. I and mean, then of course there was major unemployment in 1920. But things never went back to the pre-war situation. Actually, something I forgot to say about the First World War was women becoming uh, more active and more assertive. And obviously there'd been the big suffrage campaign before the war. Uh, that went quiet during the war, but began to revive when it became obvious that the government was going to have to give the vote to all men. And we've been celebrating this year the centenary of some women getting the vote. Perhaps could have celebrated some more the fact that all men for the first time got the vote in 1918. Before that, about 40% of men didn't have the vote because there was a property qualification which excluded a lot of poorer working-class men. Also, some unmarried middle-class men, if they lived in their parents' spare property or, or in lodgings. But it's mostly working-class people, which is another reason why um, the government, which was a liberal conservative coalition after the war, wanted to implement social reforms to keep these new voters happy. Uh, but women also were campaigning for the vote, but they didn't get it on equal terms with men. This was partly because women were a majority of the population. They were before the war, and this was increased by deaths during the war. And politicians were terrified of the thought of women being most voters. Heaven knows what terrible things would have happened. Um, and also, they 
were, were concerned about all these working class men getting the vote and felt that one way of countering that was to give the vote only to women over 30 on the assumption that they'd be altogether more conservative than young women who might be more socialist. And also they introduced the property qualification that was abolished for men was introduced for women. So that excluded many working class women. So it biased the female electorate, they hoped, in a more conservative direction. In fact, a lot of women were really very politically active after the war once they got the vote and put pressure on politicians to, for example, reform the divorce laws, make them more equal between men and women, give them equal custody rights for children. Um, and they demanded a lot of other things like uh, equal pay, but they didn't get that, of course, they still haven't got it. Um, but there was a Sex Disqualification Removal Act, as it was called in 1919, which admitted women to many occupations, professions, from which they've been excluded, like the law, architecture, accountancy. And they didn't have anything like equality in these occupations, but it began a process of women getting greater equality. In the workforce, many working-class women who'd... And the major working-class occupation for women before the war had been domestic service. And a lot of them fled out of that during the war because they'd get other jobs in, in the munitions or in other kinds of war work. But that came to an end after the war, and many of them had to go back gradually to domestic service. But the middle-class young women... There was lots more work as the civil service, local government expanded, business expanded. Again, it's at lower levels as clerks and typists, but they do have opportunities that hadn't been there before. So it did bring, begin real changes for women. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Well, I mean, what happened in the Second World War was similar in many ways, that again there was full employment and people wanted much better conditions after the war, particularly because there'd been such unemployment between the wars. It was regional, it was mainly concentrated in the north, whereas in the Midlands and south there was expansion of new industries, but it, it was serious long-term unemployment and the hunger marches and... Um, People didn't want to go back to those sorts of conditions. And during the war, again, there were lots of proposals for real improvements after the war, like the Beveridge Report on social insurance uh, to introduce universal pensions and other kinds of benefits. So when the war came to an end and there was the election in 1945, a lot of voters... The majority of voters obviously believed that 
the Labour Party would deliver better conditions after the war. I mean, during the war there'd been a coalition government and Attlee, the Labour leader, and other Labour ministers had been in charge of home conditions while Churchill and Conservatives ran the war. And so people were happy with what they'd done. And although people admired Churchill as a war leader, they had lots of doubts about him running the peace. And he'd been very unenthusiastic about beverage and generally about social policy. So Labour, for the first time, was elected in '45 as a majority government. Um, and it had a, a, a policy of generally improving conditions. In fact, it gave primacy not to building the welfare state, but to full employment in peacetime, because it always argued that the best way to improve living conditions was for everyone who could work and wanted to work to have a job at decent pay. And that they did deliver, whereas welfare obviously was to supplemented that for people who couldn't work because they were too old or too sick. Um, though in fact they they cut back on pensions and other benefits they introduced after the war. They were less generous than Beveridge recommended because they uh, prioritised funding development of the economy but obviously they had to be in government for more than six years. And then when the economy was built, they could further extend welfare. But the one major thing they did implement was the National Health Service in 1948, which was quite absolutely unique at the time in providing free health care for the whole population, which was a dramatic improvement because previously meant that there'd been a system of national health insurance introduced in 1911, which mostly benefited uh, skilled workers in regular work. So men in lower skilled work, most working class women, just didn't have access to good um, health care to, to a GP without paying for it or to hospital care unless they were lucky and there was a good voluntary hospital nearby. And also things like dental care and optical care that we take for granted weren't available to people. And it was quite common before 1948 for in working class families to give someone as a 21st birthday present, having all their teeth out and being given um, false teeth to avoid all those years of decaying teeth. And people who need spectacles might either use their dead granny spectacles or buy them second-hand on some market store. So for the first time to get decent spectacles and free dental care was a dramatic change along with, with everything else. So the health care really, really was a dramatic improvement for many people. And Labour did build quite a lot of council housing, not as much as they aspired to, partly because building resources were diverted to economic expansion. But also because Naren Bevan, who was in charge of housing, as well as the National Health Service, wanted to build to a very high standard. So people have really good cottage-style houses with gardens and indoor lavatories and bathrooms, things people hadn't had before. But that meant they built fewer because they built better. But it was the beginning of a... a you know, 
great improvement in provision of affordable housing, as people now call it. We need four or five years of calm, resolute policy and administration to enable us, after all we have been through, to regather our inherent strength and allow our native qualities to shine forth and earn their reward. This will be no vindictive triumph for Tories over socialists, no dull exclusion of liberal and independent forces, but rather a period of healing and revival. If this purpose is to be achieved, there must be no subservience to class or privilege at home, and no deflection from our known and agreed policy of acting with the other free democracies with strength, patience, and firmness. So far as the Conservative Party is concerned, our whole effort will be directed towards national recovery, both at home and abroad. Conservatives were in office from 1951 to 64, and they didn't do much to expand the welfare stakes. They weren't terribly enthusiastic about it, apart from building housing, because that had been a big issue in the 1950 and 51 elections. So they built a lot more council housing, though it was of poorer quality than the Labour housing. And they started to subsidise high-rise building at the end of the 50s, which wasn't very popular. By the 60s, generally, you know, conditions were much better. They were at their best in the 1970s, although the 70s got such a bad reputation. It was the time when there was least inequality between rich and poor, and the welfare state was at its most ex expansive. Um, but in the 60s, the economy had been faltering rather by the late 50s, as the German economy recovered and the more competing economies. But when the Labour government under Wilson came in in 64, he was very committed to modernising the economy uh, with the, the white hot, the white heat of modern technology, as he put it, and set up the Ministry of Technology to develop new technologies, um, the beginnings of computing and electronics. And that had some success, though again they were only in government for six years and couldn't do as much as, um, as they would have liked. The one thing they did do in the late 60s was to introduce this great run of extraordinary liberal legislation, which there's been no parallel to it, uh, and the abolition of capital punishment. It was temporary, then it became permanent. 1967, the partial legalisation of homosexuality, which had been a terrible stigma before, the introduction of abortion, and Britain was the first country in Western Europe to legalise abortion, um, abolishing censorship on the stage and in literature. There's a whole range of these really quite remarkable liberal changes. Oh, and of course, reformed the divorce law in 1969, which made it easier and cheaper for people to get divorces. It had been really quite complicated before. Um, and, and divorces rose after that. Most of these came about as a result of long campaigns for homosexual rights, abortion, law reform, all the other things. But 
there was a Labour government that implemented them. And they did just bring about changes and also stimulated further campaigns and really the Women's Liberation Movement and the Gay Liberation Front take off after this legislation was passed. It gave them a, a fillip. How did the UK look during the 1970s? Although it's got this bad reputation for being this you know, terrible time when the trade unions were taking over, um, it was the time when income and wealth inequality were at their narrowest of the whole period, and when um, uh, the welfare services were at their most expansive in the um, mid-1970s. The housing situation was good. There seemed to be no shortage of affordable housing at that time. And the thought, I mean, food banks were just unthinkable. And for many people, it really was a very good time. When first time, you know, lots of houses got central heating, people stopped travelling abroad on holiday. Lots of the things that since people have taken for granted become more normal for more people in the 1970s. And it was a time when the trade union, it actually was the peak of trade union membership. Um, it rose. And trade unions became active partly because of rising prices. This was an international problem, much of it driven by the hike in oil prices after 1983. So after the Arab-Israeli war, um, the oil-producing nations put up oil prices, and that caused, obviously, quite major inflation because oil had become such an important um, source of energy. And one reason why the unions are militant is to make sure that their workers' incomes keep up with rising prices. Uh, But they weren't trying to overthrow the state or do do anything like that. So in many ways, it was was a much better time for many people. There was the big um, crisis in 1976 when the government had to go to the International Monetary Fund for a big loan because there seemed to be a big deficit and much was made of that by the right-wing press. And one thing that's happening in this period is that the right-wing tabloids are becoming much more powerful and vocal. Murdoch took over, was becoming powerful, he took over the Sun uh, and then later took over the Times. So the right-wing press is becoming much more influential. And, of course, they made much of the IMF loan. In fact, the loan, it turned out the loan wasn't really necessary. The Treasury had actually got its sums wrong. Its data wasn't very good. And they only, the government only took out half of the loan that was offered. And it was all repaid by 1979. It was just much less serious. But most people seem to have forgotten that. We've had, uh, I think, six states of emergency in the last few years. A state of emergency means that the government intends to keep the essential life of the community going, and of course that is our first responsibility, and we shall do so. As you may know, plans for that are always ready. One thing that's very clear is unemployment really went up, and it began to go up in the 1970s to over one million for the first time since 1945, which owed a lot to the hike in oil prices and the, the unemployment that resulted. Under Thatcher, by about 1983, it was up above 3 million. It really shot through the roof. And manufacturing 
and mining really declined quite seriously. And consequently, poverty went up enormously. I mean, the Institute of Physical Studies produced a graph which shows poverty just going through the roof in the 1980s. Um, also, there are many more single parents, partly due to changes in sexual attitudes and the growth of divorce. And so many of them were in um, poor, were poorer. That contributes to greater poverty. At the end of her time as Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher was asked a parliamentary question about the gap between the rich and poor. The MP Simon Hughes wanted to know what progress had been made during the Thatcher years. How can she say at the end of her chapter of British politics that she can justify many people in a constituency such as mine being relatively much poorer off, much less well housed and much less well provided than it was in 1979? Surely she accepts that is not a record that she or any Prime Minister can be proud of. Mr Speaker, all levels of income are better off than they were in 1979. But what the Honourable Member is saying is that he would rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what a policy. Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. The Thatcher government was committed to cutting back welfare provision. So the kind of benefits available, they were either frozen or cut. So there's um, massive cuts to, to welfare provision. I mean, the Thatcher governments are very committed to rolling back the state, as they put it, encourage privatisation. So local authority services, for example, like... Uh, care services, residential homes, were gradually privatised and conditions deteriorated. Thatcher went in 1990 after the big crisis over the poll tax and John Major replaced her until 1997. Essentially, he continued most of her policies. Some of them were a bit softened, but not very much. Perhaps, Madam Speaker, he would like to tell me whether he has received the support of the 50 MPs who defied his front bench over Maastricht. Uh, Madam Speaker, there's one very big difference. There's one very big difference. Oh, no, there's one very big difference. I lead my party, he follows his. And then New Labour was elected in 1997. Unemployment was going to affect the middle classes. Um, and, and people really did want to change. Under New Labour, there were some real improvements. Unemployment went down. Poverty went down, not to the levels of before 1979, but it did go down quite strikingly. And a range of... They, they did try to reverse many of the cuts to the welfare state um, introduced by the, the Conservatives... Thatcher had ideally wanted to privatise the health service, but that was massively unpopular because it, it was very popular. And people didn't want private insurance instead. I was trying to encourage people to take up private insurance, but very few did. Um, but funding fell. Waiting lists grew. Services like 
catering and cleaning and hospitals were outsourced to private enterprise. And hospital infections grew like never before. Hospital-acquired infections, partly because of poor um, cleansing. That was all reversed under, under new labour. Uh, waiting lists you know, went, went down dramatically. Conditions improved. More doctors and nurses were um, trained. <clears throat> and funding for the health service, I remember rightly, went up um, between 1997 and the early 2000s. Um, they did a great deal to help young children and there's growing awareness that poverty and inequality began very early in life and if you start out poor and with poor health poor education then your chances are pretty bad so things like the sure start centers did a lot to help poorer young children they introduced the minimum wage for the first time and a number of other improvements to working conditions like that adopted from the European Union, like giving part-time workers the same rights as full-time workers, like the holiday pay and pensions and everything else, improved maternity leave and maternity payments, and introduced the working tax credit to supplement lower earnings which in fact was a subsidy to better off employers rather than raising the minimum wage. But, but at least it did benefit people on, on low incomes. So that in general, they did quite a lot to improve welfare services and work conditions. Um, introduced the new deals for the unemployed. So, that, for example, young workers... Um, single mothers who wanted work, older workers, over 50, often find it difficult to get back into work, were given positive help and advice about getting into work and access to training. And it was supportive, not punitive. So that they, they really did do a lot. The one area where they didn't do very much was housing which was a major problem because one of the things Thatcher did was the sale of council houses. And because she flogged off council houses for low prices and wouldn't allow local authorities to spend the money to build new council houses, it was the beginning of the big housing crisis we've got now and abolished rent controls. So private rentals went up. And Labour really did very little indeed to reverse that housing problem, which is why it's now so very severe. Mainly, I think, because house building is very expensive and they were so sensitive about the public sector deficit and borrowing too much that they didn't want to spend money on housing. They got round that for rebuilding and improving hospitals and schools, which is very necessary, by adopting the private finance initiative that John Major had introduced. So local authorities made contracts with the private sector to build hospitals and schools. But in the long run, that's been a very expensive way out. Um, so housing was their, was their big failure. Uh, of course, the other thing that turned people off Labour was the Iraq War, 
And one thing that's striking about the government is how voter turnout plummeted from 2001 onwards to... I think 2001 was the lowest level since 1918, when it was very low because it was just at the end of the war. Um, so they, a lot of people were very disillusioned by then. But it has to be said that Blair, and even more Brown, who was really responsible for social policy, did do a great deal to improve social conditions. So are we living in a divided society? Levels of poverty and causes of poverty, which are almost identical to the 1900s. Lots of responsible, respectable organisations, like the Institute of Fiscal Studies, the Roundtree Foundation, the Resolution Foundation, Child Poverty Action Group, are all finding levels of poverty of somewhere between 25 and 30% of the whole UK population. And that the main cause of poverty now, as it was then, is people in work, but not earning enough to support a family. And that hasn't been the case, certainly since the Second World War. Um, I mean, it's an, I mean, the government at the moment boasts about having the lowest level of unemployment since the early 1970s. But a, a very high proportion of those people who are employed are on insecure contracts, or they're just earning too little. And the so-called living wage, as it's now called, isn't really being enforced. So we're... Oh, I think it is a deeply divided society. Between, and at the same time, income and wealth inequality is between the bottom and the top is enormous. I mean, under new labour, income and wealth inequality narrowed somewhat. Well, incomes at the bottom went up without question, and got closer to middle incomes. Incomes at the very top went on rising, and they started to go... I mean, salaries in the City of London went up quite dramatically under Thatcher and carried on grow, going up under New Labour, and Blair made it quite clear that he really wasn't bothered about that, but did work at raising incomes at the bottom. And really what's been happening since then is the incomes at the top just keep on going up, I think that too many people at the bottom have got really very low incomes. And the cost of housing is increasing poverty. It's, again, the Resolution Foundation and IFS will find this, that because of the shortage of affordable housing, rents have gone up and up, and, of course, they're not controlled. Um, and, and, of course, and, of course, there's homelessness and use of food banks like never before. And universal credit, which is replacing many of the benefits that Labour introduced, is increasing poverty because it's being so slow to be introduced and it seems to be reducing people's incomes. So the way the welfare system is being cut, and is still being cut, the failure to do anything really to improve availability of affordable housing or to control the labour market so that wages really are improved and so there really is um, a minimum wage that works and that's all causing greater inequality.